Welcome to Supergirl's Attic. I'm Cycles. And I'm Vivi. So this week we're going to talk about the sort of moral foundations of the characters of Supergirl and how feelings of love or interpersonal connections either support or conflict with these moral foundations. And we've talked about interpersonal boundaries between the characters before and a bit about those moral lines. Mm. So we're going to take a closer look at those moral foundations specifically. And we thought it would be relevant to the episode that just aired, Confidence Woman 506, because we saw several of the characters interact rather interestingly with their moral values in relation to those around them that they love, particularly Andrea. We found out that she became a Krata and then used those powers to basically become an assassin for Leviathan in order to save her father's life, obviously crossing some moral lines there for the character in terms of like murder in order to honor the relationship that she has with her father and that love that they share. And then we also see Lena, on the other hand, follow along in the natural natural or unnatural progression of her sort of moral extreme that she's in right now, that do no harm mantra and her plan surrounding that, and then continuing to reject various loved ones or previously loved ones. Um, and we also see her affect Brainy along with the other DEO agents with that concept of do no harm, which in turn puts Alex in danger. So we see this sort of grand moral ideal represented within Brainy, but then in actuality, he does harm someone and and it is somebody that he loves. Well, and also Lena, by following through and using that technology, ends up putting Russell in danger ultimately as well. Mm. And ends up making Kara break her vow that she can protect him. Yeah. And of course, related to that, we see Lena use Kara's love of her and their friendship against Kara and sort of achieving ends that would go against Kara's own moral values. But then on the other hand, we see Kara hear Alex call out to her to stop this attack. And she hears her specifically because it's Alex and they share that sisterly bond. Yeah, and it was very reminiscent to in Midvale when Alex has no other way of communicating that she's in trouble. And so she just keeps talking and Kara shows up. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> and she calls, I'm in here. Didn't they also establish in 219 when Alex was kidnapped that Kara specifically couldn't hear her? To find her? Yeah, she had been used to being able to like locate her heartbeat. Yeah. So in this episode, we're going to take a closer look at the moral foundation of the lead characters in the Supergirl episode. And then we're going to discuss sort of the way that the concept of love and the value of love intersects with that. So let's start off by establishing kind of where they are in their moral development. Yeah. So for those of you who are not familiar with psychology, when you study kind of general psych principles, you're usually exposed to Kohlberg's theory of moral development. It does have some issues with it because it's not necessarily a clear cut. Like you progress from stage one to stage two to stage three, and then you stay at the highest one for your whole life. Mm-hmm. Most adults will sometimes fluctuate back and forth between different levels, but typically young kids aren't mature enough cognitively, mentally to think in the higher order ways, like the more rational ways about things. So kids only tend to manifest the lower stages. Adults may also, which we'll talk about. Mm -hmm. So there's three sets of stages and they're all kind of relative to each other. So the first one, which you typically see in young kids, so kids under 10 or so, is called pre-conventional morality with the idea that conventional is like the typical adult. Mm -hmm. And so you see two kinds of things that children will use in order to make moral decisions or judgments based on what they think should be good or bad. The first one is thinking in terms of punishment. 
So that's their cue for whether or not something is good or bad or it's something they should or shouldn't do. The idea is if there is a punishment, it means the thing is wrong. And if there is no punishment, I guess it's okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's like a cause and effect based. <laughs> yeah, it's very literal. It's very straightforward. This you see a lot in very little kids. And also their sense of how right or how wrong something is, is proportionate to how much punishment there is. So the bigger, the harsher the punishment, the more bad you were. <laughs> um, and in this case, and this is typical with little kids just more generally, there is no consideration for the feelings of others or other people's points of view in their moral decision making. They pretty much just will obey rules to avoid a punishment. They don't actually care about whether the rule makes sense or not. They just care about what's going to happen to them. Mm -hmm. And that ties directly into the other thing you tend to see, which is that young children are specifically motivated by self-interest as well. What's in it for me? How is this going to affect me? And so whatever is right is what's best for me. <laughs> this is like marginally more advanced than thinking in terms of like punishment and consequences because you're sort of considering how others might feel or react, but you only care about the feelings of others as far as they matter to yourself. Mm -hmm. And your concern for other people isn't based in any like deep sense of loyalty or love or respect for the other people. People. It's only based on, I have to be nice to them because that'll get me what I want. Uh -huh. So in terms of like moral development, this sort of sounds like the description of someone who is sort of sociopathic, kind of like Lex, in that you can read the other people around you and understand them, but only really care about it insofar as it impacts you. So like there's that extra step up of like, I understand how other people work morally, but that's as far as it goes. Yeah. And it's also important to note that like most people, adults as well, do think in terms of self-interest at least some of the time. But the difference is that the majority of adults will also consider other factors in addition to self-interest when making decisions about how to behave or when to do something that's maybe like against a rule versus adhere to rules in determining how they treat other people. Mm -hmm. And that kind of leads into the second level, which is called conventional morality. This is a stage that most of us reach by our like early teens. And many people kind of stay at this level for their whole adult lives as well. In this phase and why it's called conventional, meaning like typical, you have two orientations toward moral decision making. One of them is like after you learn how to understand social rules and social expectations, you make your decisions based on how you think you're supposed to fulfill social roles, for example. Mm -hmm. So if you think about kind of some of the stuff Alex described about feeling like she had to do things a certain way when mm. she was a teenager and a young adult, for example, uh -huh. and like thinking those were the things that other people valued, so she had to reflect them. That's a way a lot of people process their decisions. You're saying, okay, other people value this, so I should value it also. This is also a level where you're demonstrating an understanding of intention and consequences behind your behavior. So it will look like a much fairer treatment of people in terms of judging your own needs versus the needs of others than what you would see in children or people who are operating at that lower stage. Mm -hmm. The other thing that tends to mostly govern 
in people's moral decision making is their concern about respecting authority and maintaining social order. So you will fulfill the expectations of others or you'll uphold rules that are in place because they have been judged as good for society as a whole. Therefore, they must be good for you. Lucy is a pretty good example (laughs) of this one. She sure is. (laughs) It took a lot of pushing and an entire season (laughs) to get her to consider that perhaps following everything by the book did not work all of the time. Yeah. It's funny, though, because she was very concerned with the truth, Mm, which sounds familiar right now. (laughs) So in terms of thinking about like social order and respecting authority, this is a stage where you've moved beyond thinking like you need approval from specific people, which definitely has been an issue with some characters that we've seen throughout the series Mm -hmm. of thinking like they need to make their parents or like other loved ones respect them. And so they make decisions for that. In this phase where you're looking at like social order and and laws and stuff like that, you are following a central set of beliefs, but they're not really like core beliefs about right and wrong because they're not yours. They're coming to you from somewhere else. Mm. And of course, the danger of that is you can get too extreme in your adherence to those rules, Mm. kind of like the cult from season three. (laughs) Yeah. And you, you reach this point of extremism where you're like, okay, a person can't violate a rule ever because the rule was made. So the rule must be good. And if you break the law, you'll inspire other people to break the law. And that's wrong. (laughs) Uh. Mm, Yes. So then the the first section of like conformity would be understanding these sort of social roles and these rules and doing it because there's inherent value in it for them Mm. versus the social order maintaining orientation, which is more of a broad, let's keep everything in order view. Yeah, that one is much more concerned with like broader society than with just like your immediate family or like your friends, things like that, Mm. that you'd expect with younger people. Yeah. But it's still at a level where you're just kind of taking what's handed to you without really thinking about it and saying like, do I really believe that that's important? Yeah. Or that that's the right thing to do. (laughs) And so that's kind of the typical way that most people think like about day to day moral decision making. And that's how many people make judgments, which you can tell anytime you read the news. Uh, (laughs) Look at a comment section, you'll see a lot of it. But the final kind of phase of moral thinking is called post-conventional, which clearly is like you've advanced beyond the conventional. So the people who reach this stage will tend to reach it sometime in adolescence or early adulthood if there's like something that pushes them to go deeper and kind of have these considerations. But there are adults who actually never make it to this point. And so there's two orientations toward moral thinking here as well. And the first one is called social contract orientation, meaning you are able to recognize that all people hold different opinions and they have different values and that those should be respected when you're interacting with other people and making decisions. Mm -hmm. Typically, someone who adheres to this kind of moral thinking will recognize like, okay, if another person disagrees with me, but it's not about something harmful, then I can leave them alone. They don't necessarily need to change. Mm -hmm. It's okay. That's sort of something we kind of saw with the interaction in season three with James and Lena. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Where Lena was obviously more conservative and they had sort of decided not to continue that conflict because I guess they decided that it was okay that they disagreed. Yeah. Well, and the other kind of funny thing here, when we were aligning characters to the different phases, a lot of the hero characters fall into this post-conventional bracket <laughs> Yeah. versus a lot of our other characters who are perhaps less heroic. <laughs> and one of the other kind of hallmarks of this social contract orientation is the recognition 
understand that no choice is correct in all situations. So you recognize like, okay, rules exist, laws exist, but they are considered guidelines because there might be some circumstances where they just don't make sense or there might be circumstances where they're wrong. (laughs) This is an evolution we've seen Alex kind of come to early on in season one. And now anytime she's like, well, this doesn't feel right to me. (laughs) She just blazes right on past whatever Mm -hmm. is legal. (laughs) Usually, though, in pursuit of the greater good. And that's another kind of component of this stage of moral development, Hmm. recognizing that you want to foster the greatest good for the greatest number of people. Hmm. The no choice is correct in all situations aspect of it is something we saw at the end of season three with Kara debating whether or not killing Rain was the right thing to do. Hmm. And then she had decided after that sort of process that it was wrong for her to go into the situation having decided already that she was going to kill Rain. So part of her values Hmm. ended up being that you always have to try as much as you can. Yeah, Kara is a nifty special case. (laughs) So Kara is actually fascinating because Kara very much embodies the highest moral decision-making level under this theory. And so that is when a person develops what are called universal ethical principles. The fascinating thing is that when this theory of morality was created, the author of the paper claimed that he couldn't find enough people who were at this level. So a lot of scholars will be like, it maybe doesn't really exist. Um, (laughs) But we have Kara, who is very much here. And so are a lot of the similar superheroes like Captain America and Superman. Mm. The idea here is that your moral foundation is rooted in your core beliefs and your ability to reason about the situations around you and the state of the world. Like you've developed your own personal set of ethics and values. You recognize that they may or may not mesh with society's values all of the time. And one of the typical rationales you'll see from people who are at this level is that laws are valid only insofar as they are rooted in justice fairness to others. And you see a commitment to carrying out justice, even if that means disobeying a law, Mm. when you judge that the law is unfair. And we see Kara do that a lot. Yeah, we should Uh, do. This is like very much who she is at her core, (laughs) and it is why she is so intimidating to many people. Um, (laughs) The other things about it that are really striking and very much embody who Kara is, is that moral decision making at this stage is rooted in trying to take the perspective of others and trying to make judgments based on what would be the best choice for everyone Mm -hmm. in the situation and what would garner the strongest outcome. So similar to what we heard in like social contract, but also with a little bit more thinking about like the ramifications for everybody. Mm -hmm. The other part that was very striking is that with someone who is operating from this sense of like core belief in what they're doing, their actions are not like a means to an end. So think about little kids. They take actions in order to avoid a punishment. Mm. And like the avoiding the punishment is the goal. And whatever behavior they're doing is just to reach the goal. With someone who is operating on a very high level of moral reasoning, the action is meaningful in itself. You do it because you know that whatever you're doing is the right thing to do. Mm. And that's it. You're not doing it because it's beneficial to you. You're not doing it because of social convention and you think other people expect you to do it. You're not doing it just because it's legal or like because you're following rules and you're not doing it because like you promised somebody you would. Yeah. And that of course requires a high level of reasoning in terms of Mm -hmm. 
figuring out if something is in and of itself the right move in connection to everything else. Well, and the reason it's such a high order level of moral reasoning is that it requires a lot of effort and a lot of thought. Yeah. And frequently, if people are making very quick decisions, they don't want to put that effort in. Mm -hmm. This one is also interesting, the sort of universal ethical principles in that it connects to our theme of the episode, which is like morality in relation to the concept of love and like Mm. these interpersonal connections because of the role that perspective taking plays in this process of determining what the right thing to do is for the most people. And that is why Kara, as a very empathetic hero, makes sense to be at this level of moral development. Whereas we have a character like Lena, who, as we've talked about in the podcast before, struggles with perspective taking. Mm -hmm. And we see in this episode as well with her interactions with Andrea. And and Lena as a character seems like maybe she's like bouncing around on these levels of moral development. Yeah, Lena actually Actually, from a moral reasoning perspective is a little bit intriguing because she thinks she's operating from the very high level. But is she really? Because deep down, a lot of her motivation in creating this technology and trying to do the problem solving that she claims she's doing, she's doing it because of something very deeply personal and because she feels like she needs to protect herself. Mm-hmm. And that is not at all where higher order moral reasoning should place you, yeah. even though she's saying like, oh, I value do no harm, which is a medical ethic that most doctors follow, Mm. in theory, (laughs) I would hope. (laughs) She's broadly applying a moral standard without doing the sort of intensive consideration of all the ramifications for everyone. Yeah, absolutely. Even though she's acting on behalf of everyone. But this is fascinating knowing that Lena's background is engineering because that's a field where bringing in consideration for ethics has been kind of slow to come Mm. in the academic training. And I feel like we see that socially in a lot of disruptive technology that has now caused a lot of social and ethical problems. Mm. And in Lena's case, it's also interesting to think about, you know, moral development in terms of other kinds of development. Yes. (laughs) Psychological development. Obviously, we know that Lena as a character experienced trauma as a very young child, and then also emotional abuse, which definitely impacts psychological development and ability to connect interpersonally, which is sort of the issue that we're seeing with Lena in relation to ethics and ties into our theme, obviously. And we will talk more about sort of how Lena's morality has developed over the years. But now let's take a look at the individual characters and their moral development in relation to the value of love and kind of the content of their moral views as opposed to the stage that they're in. It's also relevant to keep in mind the different kinds of love and interpersonal relationships that are at play here. Obviously, we have romantic love, familial love, friendship and love for yourself, all relevant to this episode. But it's definitely interesting to see all the different ways that the show portrays these different kinds of love in terms of them kind of all being equally important to the characters. And definitely in this episode, we see friendship as sort of highlighted, Mm. which is always nice to see. It is. And it was a good return to form for this show. Yes. And particularly in relation to Kara and Lena's little interactions we got in this episode and Kara kind of trying to impart some of her values concerning love upon Lena. So let's discuss Kara. Yes. Let us lead off with Kara, the lead character. (laughs) Yes. 
So let's take a look at Carr's sort of moral foundation, which we've touched on a bit in the past. Yep. Obviously, we know from Krypton that Carr's religion emphasizes that their life's purpose is to protect others. Like we see in that prayer that Carr says in season three, she said, Ra protect us so that we might protect others. And we certainly know Alora believed that. <laughs> <laughs> we sure do. Yeah, Alora obviously emphasized to Carr that it was important for her to protect her baby cousin and then, you know, go to Earth and be like extraordinary. And the message that Kara got was, you know, be a superhero right away. <laughs> well, she partially got that message because Call had already decided to make that his life's calling. <laughs> also fair. But we also know from, you know, Superman lore in Cal's own origin story, he also got that message to be something of symbol for Earth. So we get this message that protecting others is the highest calling for Kryptonian people. And then we also know that killing is perhaps the deepest sin that they can commit, as we know, because of that exchange with Astra and Alora when they were talking about the deaths that Astra had sort of caused. But we also know that an important value on Krypton was, you know, the concept of stronger together, El Mayara, and the idea that connections with people and kind of letting people help you makes you a better protector. And it's interesting, though, because Kara would later on in season one and season two feel pretty heartbroken that her parents had not lived up to either of these values of the concept of protecting everyone, which obviously they failed because Krypton Everyone died. died but <laughs> other than that, and then also the concept of stronger together in that Alora chose duty over love when she betrayed Astra and used Kara in order to get to Astra and that connection mm. in order to send her to the Phantom Zone and said, I am bound by more than blood in this court. And Kara was obviously not happy about that. That prompted the scene in which she yelled at the hologram for what Allura had done. Then we also saw in season two that Kara was angry with her father for having chosen love over duty in that he protected loved ones and people he knew personally while also doing the wrong thing with Medusa when they bioengineered a virus to attack anyone who wasn't Kryptonian. That's like a genocide. <laughs> so we know that Kara definitely sort of internalized both of those values, but like stronger together versus protect everyone, protect others, those two values became sort of imbalanced by that traumatic event in Kara's life, I think. And so she deeply internalized this concept of my purpose is to protect others. But then, you know, in come the Danvers family. And <laughs> and so after Kara had lost everything that she loves, the Danvers not only like loved her and provided her with people to love, but taught her the importance of those connections or retaught her, perhaps. And they were sort of a balancing force, especially because the Danvers family, all the members, seemed to lean more in the direction of the people I love are the priority mm. in terms of their values. Yeah. And we see all of them to varying degrees as adults lean much more in that kind of post-conventional framework of thinking about like what's good for the people around me and how do I achieve that? Mm -hmm. Like both Eliza and Jeremiah from the start, even though they don't know a lot about Kara, A, decide to take her in and B, are very protective of her just because they know it's the right thing to do, mm -hmm. even in the face of some very dangerous challenges. <laughs> so you have like the issue of the DEO coming for Kara mm -hmm. and them standing in the way of that. But then you also have smaller things like Eliza insisting that Kara needs to just be a kid as opposed to 
taking on all of these adult burdens and exposing herself to things that she's not really emotionally prepared to handle. Mm -hmm. And we've brought up this point before that in Eliza and Alex's conversation in season one about human nature, they both seem to have this sense that not everyone is intrinsically good or Mm well-intentioned, that Kara does not share. (laughs) And speaking of universal moral principles, Kara has not conceded to their point of view. She's stuck very firmly (laughs) by her own belief. She has not. (laughs) And then Jeremiah is interesting in terms of like Mm. interpersonal like love connections versus doing the morally right thing. Because in season one, we found out that Jeremiah joined the DEO, knowing that it was questionable concerning aliens, to protect Kara. And then later on, when we see him again, this choice to protect those he loves versus do the morally right thing has become more extreme in that he joined Cadmus to protect his family and worked along with them. He said to Alex, from the moment Cadmus took me prisoner, they told me they were going to kill you and Kara unless I did what they said. I made my choice, protect my girls at all costs. Which is then really interesting given the storyline we got a little bit with Jeremiah and Alex in season two, Mm. because Jeremiah then changes sides, indicating obviously he doesn't believe in what Cadmus is doing. The moment that it was viable for him to do so and recognizing that Alex was important enough to him to do that, obviously. And Alex has the product of the household in, in which she was raised and her life experiences and stuff. She is also very much, as we've talked about before, motivated by her love of her family kind of above her principles, although her principles also do affect her decision-making to some extent. Yeah. Well, her principles are also very much entangled with a value of family being important. Well, yeah, but she also obviously believes in the organization she's working for and things (laughs) like that. Also true. Um, But so like one of the places where this comes into conflict is in the finale of season two, when the president has ordered her to fire this cannon to stop the Daxamite invasion. And she's hesitating and hesitating because she doesn't know if Kara's not there. And she waits so long, the decision is taken out of her hands Mm. and the technology is destroyed. We also see her step in and kill Astra to save Jean. Like she knows Astra is important to Kara and she knows it's like a terrible decision, but she's like, that's my dad. And we also see, kind of going back to Jeremiah in season two, that conflict over whether or not to trust him. And initially she does, which not only puts her integrity as a DEO officer in danger, it threatens the other people in the organization and all of the aliens that Kara is out there trying to kind of protect. Hmm. And that whole conflict was interesting because obviously Alex starts off angry with Kara because Kara didn't choose to believe Jeremiah. But then later on, she's horrified to learn that her father was working with, you know, the villains at the time Mm. to protect their family. But that's interesting because that's where you see some of Alex's hard lines in terms of principle Mm. and like moral judgment because she's like, I would never do that. And she also says that to Lillian earlier in season two as well. Yeah. It's just interesting for the characters of Kara and Alex in that they both lean in different directions in terms of like loved ones versus the greater good, but are most comfortable in situations where a real attempt has been made to honor both loved ones and the greater good. Mm. And so when she finds out that Jeremiah went to this extreme with Cadmus in order to protect them, it's like, couldn't you have found another way and we can take care of ourselves and kind of like these other practical things to consider. Kind of the idea that Jeremiah just went along 
along with it would be reasonably horrific for her to hear. Mm. So to sum up what Kara's sort of moral foundation has become because of these events and the people in her life, <laughs> or in spite of them, her foundation is to try to save everyone and like honor both the greater good and those you love. But when push comes to shove, the greater good comes first. And with Alex, we kind of see the inverse, where when push comes to shove, she tends to choose her loved ones and her core family. Mm. And then in terms of looking at Kara and saying like, okay, but why would you put her at the level of saying like she has these universal moral principles and not that she's acting from like a lower order point of view of doing what her mom like told her was right mm. or doing things just because her loved ones care about them. Kara, especially in season three, goes through this very long, very difficult process that prompts her to think much more deeply about who she is, what she stands for, and why. Yeah. Um, and she comes to her own conclusion by the end of the season. And that's the Supergirl that we have seen ever since. Mm -hmm. She goes through sort of a crisis because of a moral decision that she had made. At the end of season two, Kara chose to save the Earth from the Daxamite invasion and sacrifice Monel, who she, as we find out in season three, thinks she is giving a death sentence. And then in season three, she feels like she isn't human anymore because she chose to kill someone that she loves for the greater good and rejects the identity of Cara Danvers and all of those connections that Cara Danvers had. Because this role of Cara Danvers and being human is so tied to the fact that Cara found people that she loves in a new life when she decided to be Cara Danvers. And it's also interesting because in season two, Kat had actually given a little speech to Cara about trying to save people that she loves, even though attempting that may risk the greater good. And Kat talked about how that's what like makes you human. And so Cara comes into season three having made this decision of the greater good over someone she loves and feels like she needs to reject that identity entirely. And then Kara, thanks to her loved ones, learns over the course of the season that like love and human connection play an important role in acting morally. Mm -hmm. As we discussed earlier, perspective taking is very important to making well-informed moral decisions. And one of the showrunners for Supergirl talked about this progression, Robert Rovner, in the <laughs> season three DVD he said in the season two finale she kind of has to sacrifice love to save the world but you know that's the choice that she knows that she will make every time and so how do you reconcile that with living your life and then he said but i think that's what makes these heroes heroic is that they are willing to do what needs to be done to save the world mm -hmm. and then that concept is interesting in terms of another character <laughs> Lena Luther. Oh, Lena. She's sort of on the extreme end of the spectrum with that. Mm. So we see this idea of doing what needs to be done to save the world kind of warped by the fact that there are no interpersonal connections in the equation and this value of love is not present at all. Mm. Well, actually, even when you go back to her saying to James that she acted on his behalf theoretically, because she would do anything hmm. to protect people. That ultimately wasn't actually about him. <laughs> I think I've said this before, but like she was just worried that she couldn't control the outcome. Yeah. And she was afraid of how something happening to him would affect her. And it, again, connects to this issue of you're not thinking about everyone else's perspective in terms of making decisions when you're thinking about like moral choices. Lena's very much focused on like, this is my thing. This is how I'm going to do stuff. The end. <laughs> 
Yes. So so let's talk about that. Yeah. Like why she... Where did that foundation come from? Where did that foundation came from? Well, something we learned in this episode actually is relevant in terms of Lena's mother. Apparently, her mother told her a story about a character defeating the darkness, but, you know, vitally she defeated darkness on her own. And that was kind of emphasized when Lena was retelling it. She says about the girl in the story, she finds a medallion of Akrata and was bestowed great gifts so that she alone had the strength to bend shadow to her will. So we obviously see here kind of the seeds of a value of being the sole hero. Mm. And then also this concept of control, interestingly, you had just alluded to bending shadow to her will. Yeah. Well, and it's also an interesting setup because shadow is like the opposite of sun. Yeah. Which we associate with Kara. Mm-hmm. One of the prop creators for the show posts pictures of some of the props on Instagram and he posted a picture of the book that has the story called The Adventure of Akrata in it. And it said, try as the sun might, you could never quite reach the people in the village. So that's an interesting little dichotomy and kind of the idea that the sun couldn't do it. So I guess Lena has to. And then obviously in terms of sort of foundational events in Lena's life. Lena's mother dies and Lena, we know, then blames herself for not having stopped it on her own as a four-year-old. As, you know, she totally should have been able to do. Yeah. (laughs) And then obviously we come to the Luthers. The best adoptive family anywhere. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So Lena, in terms of morality and its relation to interpersonal connection and love, the Luthers were not a reliable source of love and the interpersonal connections were rather problematic for Lena. Certainly not the ideal family system in terms of stronger together. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And we've talked about this a little bit in a couple of our previous episodes, but Thanks to the fine moral education that the Luthers provide, Lena as an adult consequently has very low trust in others, number one. Trust low. (laughs) (laughs) And number two, on a moral level, operates frequently from a place of self-interest because she believes that that is what everybody else is doing. Because in the environment in which she was raised, that is what everybody else was doing. And that is definitely reflected in her plans right now. Yeah, which makes absolute sense because in times of distress, you default to the examples that are most strongly ingrained in you and in the things that you were maybe taught. Yeah as coping strategies as a younger kid. And in terms of emotional abuse, that's one of the biggest hurdles for adults sort of overcoming the coping mechanisms of the past or the urge to replicate the behavior of their abusers. Mm, Yeah. So, and Lena at least does recognize that this is a problem, right? (laughs) She clearly knows her family's values are skewed way wrong. But the reasons that she recognizes that they're skewed wrong are external, kind of like we talked about in the conventional stage. Like, yeah, she knows Lex is wrong, but she also knows for sure that Lex is wrong because he did lots of things that were illegal and killed people and went to jail. Hmm. She also, for that reason, tends to lean on external markers of validity to know that what she's doing is good or coming from a place of moral rightness, Mm -hmm. such as when she see her do things that are very obviously public goods, like donating to hospitals, or like when she stops her mother from releasing the Medusa virus, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And all that sort of external validation also serves to make Lena feel better in terms of her core belief of thinking that she's 
not good. Well, and even you can consider buying Catco coming in from this framework because she does that knowing it's important to Kara, not because it's necessarily like good for her as a business strategy. <laughs> I mean, she'll get good press out of it, <laughs> maybe. But what's more important to her is maintaining like Kara's goodwill mm-hmm. at that point in time. And that's actually kind of hilarious in a weird way because part of the reason that Lena is in the moral quandary she's in now is because she did learn things from the experience of having friends who were good people. Mm -hmm. She's actually, thanks to having such supportive friends and being reassured about her intentions and her goodness as a person for several years now, Mm -hmm. Lena has started to grow a bit more confident in her own sense of morality in terms of being able to judge what's good for herself or maybe good for others. And now... Here we are, where (laughs) Lena is still acting to protect herself. We saw very clearly in this past episode that she's making all the decisions she has made this season to heal her own hurt feelings. Mm -hmm. But she's framing it as helping the world at large so that it will fit into what she believes moral actions look like. And we've seen this as far back as season two. She frames things in kind of simple terms, like we outlined kids might. I know this is good because it will solve world hunger or cure cancer or, Mm -hmm. you know, something really big and obvious. And so at the moment, she's doing this again. She's like, I'm going to solve the world's interpersonal communication problems. <laughs> and she's trusting her own sense of it being good because all of the stuff she's done up to this point has been good in the sense that the outcome was good. Mm-hmm. And that people kind of gave her a pass on how we got to the outcome. So like, for example, with her locking Sam in the basement where she's now got Malefic. Or with her creating her own version of kryptonite, etc. Yes. And in terms of like wanting good things for Lena and like her development, that's why some of those interactions may have been frustrating because the way that people learn what is morally right is when there are repercussions for things that they do which are morally wrong. But Lita sort of jumps around on the moral development spectrum, but the sort of foundation in terms of like the content of what her morality looks like tends to be this idea of like saving the world alone. That's the value that she most adheres to. And then the issue is finding balance. In this episode, we saw actually a new balancing force in Lena's past in terms of Lena's moral value of saving the world alone versus valuing interpersonal connections. She met Andrea, who, you know, imparts this value upon her of you jump, I jump. Which we'll talk about more later, too. Yeah. (laughs) So in terms of like interpersonal connections, giving Lena confidence, Andrea gives Lena the confidence to pursue like generally Lena's like lofty ideals that she mentions. But then also this friendship kind of gives her an opportunity to form a positive interpersonal connection and see the value of love. But interestingly, she talks to Andrea when she's older and says, my brother is in a downward spiral and I am the only one who can save him from himself. And then she says, but I can't do it alone. So it's interesting to see kind of these conflicting concepts of like, I'm the only one who can save him from himself. And like that foundation that we know that Lena has of saving the world alone, but then also, but I can't do it alone and reaching out to Andrea. But then, you know, Andrea prevents Lena from reaching those goals and also makes a decision that Lena morally disagrees with and that Andrea values her father's life 
over the lives that Lex would eventually take. And Lita's kind of outraged by this. And it's interesting in terms of this concept that we've been talking about in moral development and the lack of perspective taking and the concept of respecting or understanding differing values that is found in post-conventional morality stages. Mm -hmm. And Lena just not... She doesn't care for it. (laughs) She doesn't like it. And she's also like kind of shocked by it. Whereas like a character like Kara or Alex will know that the people around them have differing views and values and different moral choices, but over the years they've come to understand and accept them. And also in terms of, you know, the other end of the spectrum, Andrea also betrays Lena in that she doesn't choose Lena over her father. Which is interesting that Lena gets so offended by that coming from a family that places so much emphasis on family in the sense of like its image and protecting the the family. Mm. On one level, it seems like Lena should get it because like the Luthers care about the Luthers uh-huh. in a way. But she also doesn't get it because there's no real emotional connections there. Mm. Yeah, that tracks. <laughs> <laughs> so then we know like later in Lena's life, she makes decisions based on this value of like the greater good matters more than the people you personally love, particularly as we see in this episode in the flashback when she leaves Jack to, as she says, be the Luther that shares her home with the Kryptonian that helps put the world back together instead of tearing it apart. This is kind of an intriguing take on the season two dynamic between Lena and Kara. And it kind of makes me call into question Lena's motives behind creating that very public Supergirl statue (laughs) that she has the dedication for in the premiere of season three, especially in light of how not actually sincere she's being right now. Yeah. Looking back, it's like, okay, well, how many of those things were really because she meant them deep down versus she was trying to win over the trust of someone she valued for her own purposes. You can also see it the entire other way, which is that here she she is expressing her respect for Supergirl already. Oh, yeah. And then that kind of continues to be prevalent in her actions. You could, but as we've established on my end of the microphone, trust low. (laughs) 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 But I think it would make sense in terms of Supergirl's image in Lena's mind, how far she fell. Fair. Yeah. Well, especially given the next point in here related to Jack. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, handsome Jack. We miss you. Oh, Jack. 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 (laughs) Oh, Titanic. I'm sorry. I can't help it. (laughs) Well, as Lena says in this episode about the Titanic, you want to meet your soulmate only to watch him die tragically? Ouch. Wow. (laughs) Lena chooses to kill Jack, essentially, in order to save Supergirl, who, as we know, especially given the context that we have here in this episode, in the flashbacks, Lena views as very important to the greater good. So she chooses the greater good over someone she loves, which, as we know, is a choice that Kara would make. And then in terms of choices that Lena has made, we saw her in season three debate whether or not she should kill Sam in order to stop Rain. And she doesn't. She doesn't. Kind of like the situation with Alex, where they both just waited and waited until the choice was taken out of their hands. Mm, yeah, And it ended up being a good thing, I guess. And <laughs> Well, it was good in the sense that she was able to adhere to one of Kara's principles of finding another way. Mm-hmm. 
Exactly. And, you know, speaking of Kara, we also see in this fight of like greater good versus a loved one. In this episode, Kara sort of breaks down Lena's walls a little bit. As Lena's putting the bricks up, Kara's like poking <laughs> her head over it like, I have super speed. I'm going to take them down. <laughs> like, hey, I, I see you're building that brick wall there. Uh, <laughs> are you sure about that? <laughs> Kara says to Lena, I've been the new girl in town. Sort of an understatement. <laughs> <laughs> a little. Yeah. And I put my guards up too, but I was miserable. And if I hadn't let anyone in, my sister actually, I think I would have drowned in it. And the drowning aspect um, <laughs> is a little disturbingly funny. Yeah, yeah. for several reasons, actually. <laughs> In a black humor kind of way. <laughs> With Kara, she had that sort of almost drowning moment in the beginning of season three when she was at her lowest in terms of like not letting people get close to her. Mm-hmm. And then an interpersonal connection popped into her head and then she saved herself. But obviously in this episode, we had Lena's mom referenced who had drowned and then we had the Mm -hmm. titanic yeah then they kept referencing the titanic movie in which many people drowned yes but it's funny that Kara mentions alex obviously as the person that helped her well i mean it's not in the sense that Kara talks about alex to strangers constantly (laughs) also fair but alex also served that role of like pulling Kara back to connecting with people for Kara in season three. Mm-hmm. And I think it's interesting because Lena's experiencing kind of a similar crisis to Kara's. Like an identity crisis in a way? <laughs> a morality crisis, I suppose. Yeah. And, you know, she's deeply hurt in a triggering way for Lena. It's this interpersonal trauma and a betrayal, which ties back to the Luther family and how she grew up and the mm-hmm. trauma associated with all of that. And then with Kara in season three, it was losing someone via a pod trip. (laughs) Just self-explanatory in terms of trauma. Yeah. And then Lena feels abandoned, which Kara also felt, obviously, with Monel thinking that he died. And with Lena, we see in this episode, her feel that betrayal concerning Andrea. And then, you know, both of them feel like they failed to fix everything. With Kara, she failed to save Monel also. And, you know, one of her values is actually being able to do it all, like we've been talking about, and trying to honor the greater good and your loved ones. And then for Lena, it was that she failed to save Lex from himself, as she says. Then they both isolate themselves from everyone who loves them and decide to devote all of their energy to saving the world with mixed results. Yeah. Well, and this isn't the first time we've seen Lena do this either in terms of getting tunnel visioned on her work. It happened in season two and season three, Mm -hmm. both times with rather devastating consequences. Exactly. And, you know, obviously the difference between Kara and Lena here is that Kara was still listening to her loved ones and still felt that compassion and could take the perspective of those around her. Even though she was more distant than she had ever been, there was still enough of a connection there to eventually get past it. But with Lena, we're seeing that deciding what to do to help someone without like actually taking their perspective and without compassion is actually pretty dangerous as reflected with this do-no-harm plan that she has. Well, and Kara also, it's kind of funny, operates according to that principle in a way because there are so many ways she could accidentally harm people mm-hmm. that she has to actively think about how not to. Yeah. And the concept or value of love actually helps Kara control her powers. She talked about her connection with the cat Streaky and learning to control her strength in order to pet him. And then, you know, in terms of practically being able to do no harm, the love of the Dambers is why Kara stuck around long enough to let herself <laughs> be taught things that are pretty important to being Supergirl now. And then we have Lena, who's pretty clear doing harm by not valuing actual individuals at all in like erasing parts of them. (laughs) 
Although it's interesting because Lena is employing enough perspective taking and understanding of other people to manipulate them in order to achieve her greater good end goal, kind of as we see in the second stage of pre-conventional morality. And we talked about Kara and how Lena was able to play upon Kara's love in order to achieve her goals. But she also played upon Andrea's love in this episode. And we should take a look at her sort of moral foundation in relation to love and interpersonal relationships. Yeah. So in terms of Lena's like struggle of perspective taking, Andrea, much like Kara, comes from a different cultural and family background than Lena in a way that feels very foreign Hmm. to Lena, clearly. Um, Andrea, in some ways, her foundation is a little more similar to Kara's in that it's more collective or family and community oriented. And it's reflected in how she brings out the random Titanic quote, the you jump, I jump. It follows in with this kind of core social belief that if one member of your close group or your family needs your help, of course you give it. Mm. And that's also something that morally is almost a little bit more in line with Kara (laughs) in that if something is the right thing to do because someone needs your help, you should do it. Mm -hmm. So I am curious to see how that will turn (laughs) now that we've gotten to the end of this particular episode. Yes. I would like to see maybe like a Supergirl-Andrea interaction in terms of morality and loved ones actually, because of what you said. Hmm. But this value of you jump, I jump, protecting your loved ones and helping them is evident in her relationship with her father. And perhaps more than was good for her as a kid, we get this sort of sense that she was trying to act like mature for her age, you know, going to bars. Yeah. Although knowing that she's not from the United States, that actually makes a little bit more sense because the drinking age, particularly in the flashback, would have been like 14 or 16 in a lot of countries. Mm, Interesting. But like we see her parents don't come to the like visitation day. Her dad's busy running business and mother's away. Mm -hmm. And she's entering these sort of adult situations, what seems like for not the first time and talks about like faking confidence. Which I liked that line. Number one, because it's true. If you act like you belong someplace, most of the time, people will then not pay attention to whether or not you should really be there. But it also reflects a very privileged worldview in some ways, because if you're not a person who's accustomed to getting what you want, you won't think to employ this strategy because you usually don't have access to too many places that are beyond your reach Mm -hmm. at all. Or you might be in a social position where even acting like you belong somewhere will not work because of your race, ethnicity, your status as an alien who looks visibly strange, Mm -hmm. or something else that might give you away as not belonging even when you might. (laughs) Also true. But in terms of Andrea and her sense of like self-reliance, we also see maybe that her father relied on her emotionally, perhaps in a way that wasn't necessarily healthy for Andrea. We see that she sort of resents her mother, perhaps for cheating on her father. Maybe she feels protective. We also find out that her father has repeat mental health issues. In terms of like depression and suicide, specifically. Yes. She says, why is your life insurance policy out? You promised you wouldn't do this again, Papa. I've seen him bad before, but never like this. And, you know, the Leviathan throws it in her face. He is on the brink of ending everything. That is why you devote yourself to him. And we don't really see any other people kind of hovering around them in terms of loved ones. It seems like maybe he's only confiding in Andrea. So Andrea is in this role where she feels like she needs to 
protect her father and help him, which is understandable. But one thing that was interesting was that her father is choosing to leave Andrea so that she'll have a better life. So in terms of the concept of love and actions based on love, there's a difference between doing something to help someone that you love and doing something to not lose someone you love. And in this situation, we see that he Mm. is willing to lose her and willing to make her lose him in order to help her or to do what he thinks would help her. Yeah. And again, to go back to things that were interestingly perhaps reminiscent of Kara, this situation that Andrea is in with her father is both reminiscent of Kara's moment of leaving Krypton and also different because we see Andrea clearly disagrees with her father over the thought that her life will be better Mm -hmm. without him. And certainly Kara doesn't feel like she's better off for having been essentially abandoned and orphaned as a child when maybe one of her parents could have found a way to come with her or something. But unlike Kara, Andrea is already an adult at this point when she's having this conversation with her father. And is at least in a position where she can take care of herself financially and Mm. practically, if not emotionally. And it would leave her maybe freer to make choices for herself if she no longer felt that sense of responsibility. Mm -hmm. Whereas with Kara, she was still quite young and she says, like, I needed my mom. Yeah, Um, But yeah, we get the sense that, you know, in terms of like Andrea maybe being freer to make decisions for herself in her life, that one of her goals in life is to live freely, which is the reason that she relates to Rose Dawson from Titanic, who is trapped under these social obligations and within her family dynamic, but then finds a way to be free. And Andrea says about Rose, she specifies Rose post-Titanic. She went out there and grabbed life, didn't waste a single moment. That's my dream to go everywhere, experience everything, all while taking my dad's company to the next level. So we see both this urge to like be free and then her still you know, considering her father and um, her family legacy, if you will. Yes. Much like other characters, like both Kara and Lena are a little bit driven by that. Yeah. And Jean, of course. And Jean, yes. However, Andrea, unlike Rose, stays entangled with her family's needs, like her father specifically. And then she becomes more tied down. Obviously, when she makes the decision to save her father's life by listening to Leviathan, and they get her to murder many people in order to honor that agreement. Mm, And actually, from a moral standpoint, we can see that she doesn't agree with what they're doing Mm -hmm. and is just carrying it out for fear of punishment, which, again, is kind of like, that's a very low order of moral reasoning, but it is something that adults will default to if the situation warrants it. Mm -hmm. But, you know, tying into the Titanic, similarly to Rose, it is a romantic love connection that pushes Andrea to break from these obligations she feels trapped under and that she goes to Lena to save Russell's life. Russell being her fiancé that William had discovered a couple episodes ago. Yes. Slash Rip Roar. Yeah. Which goes against, obviously, Leviathan's wishes. And so, like, you know, you could read this as her choosing romantic love over familial love, but kind of like how Andrea sees it with Rose, it's kind of a gateway to living the life that they really want, and in Andrea's case, perhaps living more closely to her values. Maybe. <laughs> well, and it's also an insight into the fact that Andrea is willing to take risks because she believes that interpersonal connections add value and meaning to her life, mm. which is kind of the opposite of the place that Lena's in right now. And is kind of much like the thing we saw Kara struggle with in season three. Mm-hmm. Andrea is not really going through a moral crisis as much as we've seen. No, actually. she's she's already in a place of knowing like 
the thing that she's trapped in is wrong and she wants to get out of it. (laughs) But then she also doesn't seem to like fret that much over the decisions that she has made, which is interesting. Well, it's actually not all that surprising because another aspect of analyzing culture is looking at your locus of control. So like how much you feel in control of your own decisions and Mm -hmm. non-Western European cultures tend to have a stronger sense of like, well, what's going to happen is going to happen and you just have to deal with it. You can't change it. So to me, it makes sense that, yeah, maybe she doesn't want to be out there killing people, but she's like, well, I was coerced into doing it and I can't do anything about it now. Uh But that might also be a little bit why she doesn't realize that Lena is still holding on to this grudge for as long as she has been. Possibly. Like we see Andrea very clearly like she misses the friendship that she had with Lena and she's sad that Lena stopped being friends with her anymore over it. But when she comes to her in this episode, she assumes that like the mutual feelings of goodwill (laughs) and the fact that a lot of time has passed (laughs) (laughs) and that they're mature adults now in theory means that like maybe lena will help her because lena's a good person yeah and you know we we saw that andrea cared a lot about lena and you know it wasn't actually the first time that another loved one pulled andrea away from sort of tending to her dad's like emotional needs or you know survival needs like when andrea leaves her father who is you know suicidal to help lena find the medallion so she clearly cares about her and you know she sees that she's lonely in boarding school and befriends her that is the way that they met and tries to cheer her up and make sure like in the flesh forward a little bit to check in on lena after andrea expresses her own stress in her life about her dad and then she has this value of you jump i jump that lena in present time reflects back to her so So she figures that that foundation is still intact enough to trust it. So Andrea will choose decisions that do not always benefit her father the most, but typically, as we've seen, when it helps someone else that she loves. Mm -hmm. So this concept of you jump, I jump is very important to her. And in terms of what her morality is based in, she will choose her loved ones over what is otherwise morally right or right for her own life pretty much every time that we've seen her make a decision. Yes. So then that kind of rounds out our discussion on moral reasoning and how it applied to the major characters in focus in this episode. So Kara, Lena, and Andrea. And now we have a bunch of questions that we got from you guys, our listeners. Many of them, unsurprisingly, were focused on Lena and morality specifically. So (laughs) worked Worked out out. great. (laughs) Actually, one of them came very close to being our topic. So we'll start with those. The first one came from an anonymous Tumblr user, and it was, with what's been shown with Lena in these flashbacks, what's your thoughts on her justifications? While not as egregious, I see Lena's backstory as the same as Lockwood's in the sense that I see why, but I'm not sympathetic. Also, what do you think Lena's redemption arc will look like? Yeah, so I agree in terms of Lena's backstory in this episode. And our next question actually also referenced the similarity to Lockwood. Uh, I agree in terms of Lockwood and Lena, their flashback episodes explaining maybe some things about their headspace. Mm. And establishing like a pattern. Yeah, that also. But not necessarily making you be like, oh, I understand why you're doing that now. It's totally cool. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think you were supposed to come away from it being like, yeah, everything you're doing is fine. You were supposed to come away from it being like, I get why you're doing this but it's a terrible idea. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so her justifications were weak, (laughs) is the answer to that. 
And then what do we think Lena's redemption arc will look like? I'm anticipating some steep interpersonal consequences. Obviously, in the past, we've seen Kara kind of try to see Lena's perspective repeatedly, even in situations where it would have been maybe smarter for her to establish boundaries and be like, no, this wasn't okay and stick to it. I don't think they're going to go for the like season one, you did something bad and now I will hug you. I don't know. I think that Lita will experience some sort of vague consequences. I don't know if she'll experience consequences in terms of the law, like she perhaps should, but interpersonally and maybe she'll do something that she recognizes as terrible. We can only hope. We can only hope. So she'll have some sort of revelation and hopefully it'll be a slow earned progress back into good graces or good standing, which is a vague answer, but that's all we have. (laughs) Well, I am hoping that the show will visibly demonstrate a self-awareness of the fact that Lena's doing all of the things Kara was afraid would happen if she shared her identity as Supergirl. Mm-hmm. And by that, I mean specifically targeting Kara and her loved ones in a malicious way that puts their lives mm-hmm. in danger. Particularly, I am very curious to see what will happen if and when Kara finds out that Lena was playing on her concern as a distraction that then could have harmed Alex, mm-hmm. because that's not yeah. a situation we've ever seen Kara be. Well, no, that's not true. We have seen Kara in a position where her loyalty to different members of her family has been put at odds. But we haven't seen it with like a friend versus a member of her family. (laughs) And certainly not in a way where one of them was doing something that is very much a betrayal of her trust and Mm -hmm. of her caring for them. So... I think for Kara, in terms of betrayals from Lena, most of the arguments that they've had in the past have been kind of directly about Kara and Kara's feelings. And even in the case where it should have maybe extended to the fact that Lena was doing something that endangered all aliens by making the Haranel serum, it was framed to be about Kara's feelings. And therefore, Kara reacted perhaps with more understanding than she would in cases like you mentioned, maybe her loved ones being at risk or some great moral consequence Mm. occurring so we'll we'll have to see we'll find out and we'll also find out i guess how the crossover is gonna shake all of that up (laughs) and possibly change everything we think we understand so (laughs) who knows and then the next two questions we got are actually related so we got a question from marie fandom love seven on twitter when will lena stop crossing the line putting her friends in danger mind controlling brainy does the argument about betrayal justify it all no Also, this episode is similar to the episode about Lockwood. (laughs) Yes. I have so many questions. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So do we. And then the, the second question that was very similar came from An Evolutionary Matter on Tumblr. And she asked us, you guys have previously discussed boundaries and the lines that people will or will not cross. Lena continues to set boundaries for herself that she incrementally changes to suit her needs. Do you think there is a boundary that Lena will not cross, especially if you feel she can still be redeemed? And if so... What do you think that boundary is? So theoretically, I don't think that there is a boundary that Lena would not cross. Didn't she say as much last season to James? (laughs) Yes, she did. I also think that we can get most of these characters to do kind of anything depending on what the stakes are. But in terms of right now for Lena, her moral status (laughs) right now is do no harm. Like her principle that she's operating by? Yeah. 
but we know that the ends justify the means and apparently whatever the means is. I don't think that she would like kill like Kara or Alex or them unless like there was a situation where it was like their life versus whatever her end goal is directly. Like in this episode. Yeah. Although see, she assumed every single person would be affected and therefore not harmed, which again is Lena not necessarily thinking through all of the potential consequences of her actions before doing them. Yeah. She seems to have this line of like, I'm not going to kill anyone or I'm not going to let people kill anyone. Mm-hmm. But like, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Maybe that's the line that she'll cross and, and then she'll be like, oh, wait, that was terrible. But like Anifa said, Lena continues to set these boundaries and then changes them. So anything could happen. <laughs> the important part in terms of her eventually being redeemed is her actually setting some boundaries and lines for herself and then sticking to them in a way that actually helps people. And our... Next question is from another anonymous user on Tumblr. What are your thoughts on how the comic canon of Akrata has been appropriated to serve Lena's storyline? I have expected Thomas Kuville to show up since there was so much (laughs) cultural appropriation going on. Do you expect there to be some tie-in between Lena's mother and Leviathan? Oh, I hope not. Honestly, her mother's obsession with a story about driving out darkness made me wonder if it was a metaphor for her mother suffering from depression. Definitely. I think that guess about the allusion to depression is a wise insight, especially since Lena also mentions her mom promising like when things are better. Mm -hmm. And that had been making me wonder about her mother's death, actually, in terms of her just wandering into a lake and then never returning. Yeah. So with regard to the cultural appropriation thing, it was a bit disappointing. I'm curious to see what they continue to do with the Akrata story, but it did feel somewhat tone deaf to take a story that in its origin is about a Mexican superhero specifically who protects people from organized crime, particularly knowing that there was a huge case in the news this week about families of women and children being murdered by Mexican drug cartels to take that story and then change it in this way where it is no longer specific to that culture at all. And then to make the person who introduces it is the expert on it and is now in possession of this ancient artifact be like the whitest white person in the show. Mm -hmm. That was very frustrating. And that's a misstep that this show has done repeatedly with Latin characters in a number of different ways. Mm -hmm. It would have made much more sense for Andrea to introduce the story of Akrata. That was also weird knowing that Lena grew up in Ireland. Like, why does her mother have stories about Latin American folktales mm-hmm. that she was obsessed with. Yeah. I think there could have been a way to make it relevant to Lena's experiences and like maybe even give her a personal connection somehow while also not making her the source of it and then also not pointing out the weirdness in text of Lena going and being like, this medallion is mine. <laughs> yeah, that part was extra like Tomb Raider in the literal disrespectful anthropology of a hundred years ago since. Uh huh. It wasn't done in a particularly self aware way. No, and also the whole scene of them discovering it was not well thought through on a subtextual level because you had the guides who were very clearly meant to be brown people and they actively spoke Spanish. Andrea did barely. She mostly translated her responses into English, like answering their questions, and then Lena disagreed with them at every turn and turned out to be right, Mm. which on a subtextual level is an incredibly bad look. So 
that is frustrating. And that was a thing I was not this specifically, but just more broadly, I was concerned about storytelling for this season after hearing that the showrunners were preparing to launch a new project this season and then seeing that there was no showrunner credit on the season premiere when historically there always has been because I feel like maybe the oversight on some of these storylines and how scenes develop is not there Hmm. in the same way and then also they've lost a couple of their writers who were really very good about this kind of stuff and some of the people who've come in are relatively inexperienced so there's a combination of factors coming together here but this particular thing related to the politics of Latin American characters and Hispanic characters in the United States has been an ongoing weakness in the show. Mm -hmm. And it was not better here. No. (laughs) We also got a related question from I am Delta S on Tumblr. How would you guys have rewritten the episode to avoid all the unfortunate implications that were present? I think... Maybe having had the story of Akrata be something that was a shared thing that either Andrea introduced to Lena or that was relevant to her in some way, taking the focus of it off of Lena and putting Lena in that position of like white savior trope Mm -hmm. would have helped considerably. I also think if some of the same things had happened, but there was more of a sense of like Lena not actually having ownership over this and that in fact it is Andrea who is more connected to it would have helped. Well, and there's also the weird implication that they added in at the end of the episode when Lena makes Andrea give her the medallion and then the Leviathan guy is like, oh no, the darkness was always inside you to Andrea, which like, again, with your weird messaging on a subtextual level, Akrata is a superhero in the comics and Andrea is the only Latin character in the show. And you're implying that she's got this like internal state of darkness that turned her into an assassin or something along those lines. Like, hopefully there'll be a turn in that story. Mm-hmm. Well, it's like, you know, in the comic version, it was she was still like a shadow yeah. being. But it was... It was weird the way they explained it. Wild to hear that. I was like, oh, so she was actually the chosen one. Oh, no, it's about darkness. And that has unfortunate implications there. Yeah. I have some hope in terms of her character more broadly across the season and this metaphor of darkness. I wish they would have framed it as something other than darkness, because that is something that we associate with like things that are evil, bad, and immoral. Well, I think there was a way where it's more about her... Kind of like they said in the story, having control over the shadow and like mm. being able to, because it's hard to, to use the shadow character without talking about shadow and darkness. So basically just have made it more connected to Andrea as a character and like her history and then emphasize obviously her connection then to the medallion in a more self-aware way and then handle the darkness metaphor a bit better would have helped this episode in terms of rewriting it. Yes. Okay. And our last question, we're going to end on a fun one. So thank you, An Evolutionary Matter, for sending a fun question. Uh, (laughs) Our question was to assign each character a Titanic parallel. Do you have an Alex parallel? (laughs) Ooh. I will give Alex to – so Alex, like early season two Alex, perhaps, as like the part where Rose describes herself as feeling like she's screaming in a crowded room and no one looks up. Cool. (laughs) Good choice. (laughs) Can you tell? I've seen this movie a lot of times. (laughs) Yes. I have a car parallel, which is – Ooh. I'm ready to be hurt in my feelings. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you see, you know, the moment when they're all in the boots, the lifeboats, the yeah. lifeboats, and then they look back at the Titanic oh, sinking. Oh, the fireworks? Yeah. 
right? Yeah. Yeah. Where she's in there watching it sink. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I see where this is going. (laughs) Uh, So that moment of witnessing the destruction parallels with Kara's own pod moment, obviously with her little lifeboat. Wow. That's terrible. Mm -hmm. I love it. (laughs) Thank you. Let's do Jean. Jean. Hmm. Jean's the corset moment when he's trying (laughs) to... Is he Rose in this scenario? Yeah, yeah. forcing Rose into the uh, corset is like Jean trying to become who his father wanted him to be. (laughs) Oh, see, now I would also say that Jean, like in relation to the thing with his brother, is like Victor Garber when he apologizes for having not built a better ship. Oh. That would protect everyone and keep them safe. Okay. Yeah, I like that. Oh, Kara also, and the moment when older Rose throws the necklace over the edge is like when Kara gave it to Model. <laughs> <laughs> yes, actually. Um. Oh, that was a parallel I kind of had made in this episode with Lena being so, so insistent on getting that necklace because her mother told her about it and it was like a precious childhood memory mm. of hers, even though it was an artifact of another country. Which is the, like the opposite of what Kara does with her necklace from her mom. She gives it to Monel specifically because she knew it made her feel better and she wanted him to have something like that. Hmm. But in terms of Titanic parallels, it's kind of like when the team of people searching for the necklace <laughs> in the Titanic <laughs> <laughs> ruins underwater. Oh, like the explorer people? Yeah. And okay. Lena's like them <laughs> also exploring. Lena's the treasure hunters. Yeah. And then is upset when <laughs> she doesn't get it because it belongs to somebody else. Valid. Yes. And then Andrea chose her own, which is the uh, Rose photo montage from the very end of the movie where you see like her, her life well lived <laughs> after she escapes from the oppressive oh, reigns of her family. Oh, I hope that's how Andrea's storyline ends. I hope so, too. So that wraps up our episode on morality in relation to interpersonal connections. We will be back next week to talk about themes related to episode seven of season five. Again, if you want to ask us questions that we can answer in our podcast, send them to us on Twitter, Tumblr, or Instagram by around 10 p.m. Eastern time, Monday nights, so that we can add them to our notes and answer them. Mm -hmm. And thanks for listening. Thank you.